So tonight's um, the half moon night in the lunar cycle. So custom in monasteries in the Ajahn Chah tradition to come together on these lunar observance days to practice meditation together and listen to Dhamma chant together this same kind of practices going on in many other monasteries around the world at the same time or allowing for variations in time zones almost the same time very useful <coughs> skillful means that Ajahn Chah encouraged both Sangha and laity to come together on these days as a skillful means to bring up more effort in the practice even though we might enjoy periods of solitude being on our own to arrange our own routine and way of meditation and study. There's also much benefit to be had from coming together. We get sometimes we get group energy and we can support each other in the practice of sitting, walking meditation, chanting and so on. We're fortunate that we've come into the Sangha and we've had a very good teacher, Lumpur Cha, not only had uh, the wisdom to train himself to free his mind from suffering, but he also had great skill in teaching others. So it's worth reflecting on these kind of practices that we do. They're coming from uh, the enlightened wisdom of a disciple of the Buddha in the modern age. <coughs> some, for some people that's enough. They have faith in the enlightenment and the wisdom of Lumpur Cha. So if he said, come together and practice meditation to meet frequently, meet together in harmony, meditate together, chant together, for some people that's, that's enough. And they trust that that's a good instruction and they'll take it on board and do it. 
others maybe have more doubt. So you have to consider more deeply why would he have us do this. Start think about some of the benefits. And if these kind of practices you come together and practice for many hours together bring up some kind of suffering, then obviously it's an opportunity to look at suffering and where it comes from. And learn to practice in this kind of situation. Because it's the nature of life, we can't always control conditions and make the uh, conditions, the environment for our practice suit our particular desires and preferences all the time. It's part of our practice, we have to learn to be adaptable. That's the most important quality we need in the beginning is just the willingness to learn. Willingness to learn, willingness to train. And Lumpur Chah said, if you're willing to train, then already that, that's a big advance in your practice. You're willing to listen, you're willing to apply yourself to the different teachings, to the Dhamma, to the Vinaya. We study the Vinaya and we apply ourselves to try and follow the rules, the training rules, the monastic practices. We learn techniques of meditation and we apply ourselves to them. If we maintain that willingness to learn, then we can practice in every situation, in every place, whatever monastery we travel to, or if we're living on our own in the forest, it doesn't matter because we have a good attitude, one who is willing to learn. Sometimes he would say it's the earthworm view of things, and learning to appreciate the value of humility, set aside some of our past conditioning, views and opinions, and knowledge that we may have gained, and just being willing to give up or surrender to the training that we're given, to the Vinaya, to the meditations, to the reflections on Dhamma. The earthworm <coughs> is obviously small and insignificant in most people's minds, but many earthworms together have a very valuable effect on the ground. They fertilize, nourish the ground, oxygenate it, as any farmer will tell you. Sometimes Buddhist monks, we should see ourselves like that. We may be practicing anonymity in a very humble way, but we can have great benefit, especially the more there are in the world, the more Buddhist monks there are in the world. It can be of great benefit to the whole of society, but often in a very subtle way. 
stay in the background, don't make a lot of noise, a lot of fuss. But in a subtle and very quiet, simple ways, we can have a very powerful effect, like the earthworm. And in our own practice, we have to develop that, that quality of being willing to learn, willing to listen, willing to review what we've heard and try and use the information and the guidelines and apply it in daily life. When we think about a teacher like Lumpur Chan, we say, well, we think he was enlightened. It's worth considering what does enlightenment mean. And the way the Buddha described it, it means an enlightened being, enlightened Sangha member, say an Arya Pugala, somebody who's managed to overcome their greed, hatred and delusion, the causes of suffering through their practice. They've applied themselves to the practice, they've trained, they've learned, and actually succeeded in overcoming greed, hatred and delusion, abandoning them from their minds. Depending on what level of attainment, maybe some some level, some amount of greed, hatred and delusion is removed. Or if it's an arahant, then it's completely removed. And that's what we mean by enlightenment. So somebody who's experienced that will have a very clear appreciation of the path of practice that led up to it. And they can use their wisdom, their skill to help others practice along the same pathway. They can share some of their own experience, their insights that they gained from their practice and uh, pass it on to others. And Lumpur Cha was one who was very skilled, had a unique skill in doing that. Not only for Sangha, but for laity as well. The reason we have to keep this uh, earthworm's view of things is because our past conditioning as we've come up, been born into the world and been taught by our parents, gone to school, had different experiences living in the world. We've constantly been mistaken in the way we perceive things. So the basic mistake of the unenlightened person is we see everything that is actually impermanent as permanent. And that which is <coughs> suffering or subject to suffering we see as happiness or source of happiness. That which is not self 
without an owner, we take as self. These are the basic misperceptions or delusions that affect us and have affected us. So when we come into the practice, we ordain as monks, live in the monastery, yeah, those perceptions are still with us. They haven't yet disappeared or been abandoned or been understood necessarily. So again, we have to take on trust what we're taught, take on the Vinaya training, take on the aspects of the Dhamma that we listen to and have explanations of. But then we have to go and apply them through the practice, through our experience. The Lumpur Chao would encourage everyone to contemplate, get to the point where they can contemplate the Dhamma, to really look at those misperceptions that we're constantly being affected by. When we have suffering, it's always because the mind is thinking in the wrong way. It's looking for some happiness somewhere maybe that can't be found, can't be maintained. We're always taking ownership of our experience, taking ownership of this body, our feelings, our thoughts, memories, as me, mine, myself. And so there the suffering starts to arise. And that habit is established when we come into the monastery. But all the practice that we're learning and doing is designed and helping us to see through these, these misperceptions, misunderstandings of truth. So in the beginning, he encouraged us to, to put a lot of effort into just following the basic routines, learning the patimokha, following the rules, putting effort into uh, the practice of restraint of sila, just to help reduce and manage the worst excesses of these misperceptions that we carry around with us. So we don't get too obsessed with seeking pleasure in the world. And we don't let our frustrations and our personal experience of suffering be a cause for us to harm ourselves or others. He used to encourage his monks to be very content, to develop contentment with the requisites that we have, the lifestyle that we have, the place, the buildings, the environment that we're practicing in, to learn to be content with what we have. If we can't find that, we can't appreciate this, then we're always looking for more, looking outside of ourselves, looking outside of our situation. And he would remind the monks that this could be an easy pathway to end up going back to the lay life. If you're a monk, 
living in a monastery, living in a very simple, restrained lifestyle, with few possessions, no money, not much else in terms of material things. And then it's very easy to use your free time just to be thinking about, planning, imagining what it would be like back in the lay life. What you might be doing, traveling, visiting people, getting things, getting material things, having relationships, maybe even having a family, maybe even having children, and so on. That's the way the mind goes, isn't it? When we're caught into our misperceptions, everything we think of, we think will bring us happiness, bring us some certainty, bring us something better, better than what we've got right now. So we have to learn to appreciate the simplicity and the ease of this lifestyle. You're learning to live with just a set of robes and a bowl, a meditation hut that we don't actually own. It's just a place we use temporarily, maybe move from hut to hut or monastery to monastery. Learn to appreciate the simplicity of our lifestyle, the way we gain our requisites from the laity and so on. In order to counter that tendency to always be looking out of ourselves, looking for more. Going back to memories of the past, eh? past experiences we've had in the lay life that at the time maybe weren't so interesting or exciting or stimulating. But now, when we're sitting in the forest on our own, maybe seem very much more stimulating or exciting, built up by our imagination and wondering and thinking. It takes effort to come to contemplate or appreciate the lifestyle that we're living, to learn to be content with this lifestyle. It's not something that will happen by itself, it's something we have to put effort into contemplating, bring up mindfulness in the way we use the requisites, in the way we follow the daily routines and the practices of, of a monastic in training. When we do it with mindfulness, we tend to bring the mind back to the present moment. It cuts out some of that tendency towards fantasizing, imagining. And maybe whatever frustrations or difficulties we've had in the past don't seem so bad. When you bring your mind to the present moment, even if you've got a little, it can be enough. Even if you've only got a few requisites, you're living very simply, it can be enough because your mind is in the present moment, because you're directing it to use mindfulness and clear comprehension from moment to moment in your day. So our practice begins like this, in very humble ways, learning to be content with what we've got and then turning our attention inwards rather than 
always looking outwards and further away for other things, other experiences, other places, and building up a power of mindfulness, a continuity of mindfulness and reflecting on our own body and mind in the present moment. Because this is really where suffering arises and where it can be remedied, where we can abandon it, end it. Lumpur Chai sometimes would say that the, the Buddha, although the historical Buddha was born and lived in India, practiced in India, was enlightened in India, really the Buddha is something that arises in the hearts of anybody who's practicing this path, following his footsteps. If we're willing to practice Sila Samadhi Panya, we're willing to put effort into this and then in, little by little we start to open up, realize, see the Dhamma inside of our hearts more and then we start to see the Buddha inside of ourselves, the qualities that make a human mind into the mind of a Buddha or an enlightened being. If we understand this, then we can see that wherever we are, if we practice, we bring up effort into the practice, developing practice, the practice of sila, samadhi, panya. And it's as if the Buddha is arising within us. At any moment when we have sila, samadhi, panya in the mind, these different qualities are there. It's as if the Buddha is right with us arising within our own heart. Maybe this is why the Buddhist teachings can spread around the world. As we've seen, students of Ajahn Chah have gone out throughout Thailand, now they're going out throughout the world, practicing, teaching the Dhamma, practicing for themselves, teaching others, other Sangha members and other laity. Why is that? Because it's, it's like there are, <clears throat> say when monks who have trained with Ajahn Chah go out to other places, it's like they become a cause for the people they encounter to hear the Dhamma, consider the Dhamma and start training in the same way. Little by little, it's like they're sparking something in the the minds, the hearts of those people. You could say it's like they're sparking the inherent wisdom of the mind. Or you might even say the Buddha within the minds and hearts of those people. It isn't limited to a place. It's not limited to India or Thailand. It's limited to the practice if we really want to experience what the Buddha experienced, in the peace of a mind that's abandoning or has abandoned greed and hatred and delusion, then we have to practice. And that practice can be done anywhere. It's not limited to time and place. Whether we've 
managed to let go of a little bit of greed, anger, delusion, or a lot, then we're following in the footsteps of the Buddha, and a little bit of the Buddha is arising within our own heart. If you're living in this monastery, every day people come, generally as you might know, they tend to talk about their problems, health problems, relationship problems, problems at work, financial problems and so on. Every day people are bringing us little teachings that we can use, reflections, they're reminding us of how maybe it might have been for us before we were monks, or if we left, leave the monkhood, how it might be in the future. You know, everybody, is, they're all experiencing similar kind of things. As people get older, sooner or later, they tend to fall ill. Sometimes serious illness, life-changing illness, sometimes life-ending illnesses. Just the other day, there was one day, somebody rang up, their relative had died of lymph cancer. And on the same day, a lady came, she had been diagnosed with lymph cancer, was asking about how she should go about her treatment. And sitting next to her, as a stranger to her, was another lady who had just recovered from lymph cancer. And one day, you see, Diagnosis, you see recovery, but you see, see death as well. It's a typical kind of day in a monastery, it's like that. People have their suffering and they're looking for support, guidance, and so on. But that's the experience of human beings, isn't it? So every day they're teaching us, teaching us the Dhamma. If we give up the practice or go back, back to the world or back to a a way of living where we're not practicing, what are we going towards? Are we going towards suffering? More suffering because of more clinging, more delusion. So even though we live in the monastery and we have periods where we find sometimes it's very frustrating or difficult, or we get beset by doubts, concerns, anxiety about the future, what we're going to do, Really what we have to do is just come back to the present moment. Establish mindfulness and contemplate what's going on around us. Whether it's listening to the lay people who come, or just looking at our own experience. Yeah. When we give in to greed, what's the, what's the result? When you follow your greed, does it make your mind peaceful or does it make your mind agitated? If you're <clears throat> always thinking about the things that your greed wants, whether it's the objects of the senses, whether it's sexual desire, desire for food, desire for wealth or money, to travel for different experiences, what does it actually do to the mind as an experience? 
bring suffering. When we think about our families, can we accept the fact that we have to separate them from them and one day they're going to die and we won't be with them forever? Can we, can we accept that or is our mind still attached? When we think about the future, what we want for ourselves, what our goals are, our aims, you know, how much is greed coming into that, ambitions, unfulfilled goals and so on. And this practice is more looking at what greed does to the mind rather than keep, to keep following its, the proliferation that comes from it and the sort of the stories and fantasies that come from it. Just look at it as an experience. When you have desire in the mind for something that you don't have, it's agitating, it's frustrating as well. It can lead to anger, disappointments when we don't get what we want, or even when we get what we want but we can't hold on to it. If we keep contemplating that, it leads to a weariness, a weariness with the greed and the following of the greed, not weariness with the Dhamma or the practice, we become weary of of the greed, we can become weary of giving in to the greed. So the mind actually wants to practice mindfulness more, actually wants to have enough wisdom, clarity to abandon greed. If we really had some insight like that, then you don't get bored with the practice. You want to practice. Everything else becomes second place. Your relationships that are still based on greed and attachment don't lead to happiness. When we abandon our greed, then what arises in its place? We develop more equanimity and then more kindness and compassion based on that peaceful state of mind. We can actually relate to our family or our friends or other people with compassion rather than attachment. We can understand the way of the world. We can understand the limitations of sense pleasure, the thing that we're normally caught up in with our greed. We know it's just that much, it doesn't last. It's nothing to be obsessed with or fascinated by. This can only come through contemplation, <clears throat> contemplation of our own experience, even if, even if it's suffering. And that's often the place where wisdom can arise. But we have to be willing to look at these things. We have to train ourselves in mindfulness, train ourselves to look well, to look clearly, and not be fooled or tricked by the effects of the defilements, greed, anger, delusion. And the Buddha said if we clearly see kilesa, defilement, then we'll know it's harmful to the mind, to us. We'll naturally want to just drop it abandon it. 
because we don't clearly see that we keep indulging our kalesas. We have to keep bringing up mindfulness and contemplating our experience day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And everything can be a source of teaching. It's not necessarily one thing that's better than another, whether it's sitting meditation, walking meditation, doing chores, sweeping, bathing, eating. Your mind is with you the whole time. Your mind is functioning, it's going along, it's carrying along its delusions with it. It's also carrying on the potential for mindfulness with it all the time. You'll find if you put effort into the most basic practices, learning to sit, learning to walk regularly when you're on your own or you're in a group situation, gradually these will bear fruit. And gradually you'll start to shed some of this tendency towards proliferation <coughs> and the different moods and emotions that we experience because of it. If you keep practicing, you get better, your mind becomes stronger. You can sit longer and with more mindfulness, more alertness. You can walk longer with better mindfulness and more steady states of mind. If you keep up your practice, sitting and walking like this regularly, then you'll find that even at these other times when you're not in formal meditation, then the, the opportunity for insight and understanding is always there. It's always possible for insight to arise. You may be just seeing some event happening around you, witnessing something externally, or just having a thought or a memory pop up in your mind, but now treating it as Dhamma rather than just indulging it or getting lost in it. If we go back into the world, then and this opportunity is almost certainly lost. You go back to the world, working, family life, responsibilities, then the opportunity to gain real clarity is very, very difficult. So many distractions, so many different kinds of suffering besieging the mind. If we can learn to be content as bhikkhus with the with the lifestyle, with the way of practice, with the teachings. And then the, the simplicity and the clarity of it is so suitable for gaining insight. And little by little as you practice, then everything becomes more and more obvious, more and more apparent to the mind itself. There's nothing that we need to cling on to in this world. The very process of clinging, how craving and attachment arise and how they affect the mind becomes clearer and clearer. And we see how over and over again it's conditioning the mind, just leading to suffering. If we can start to understand the true nature of things, see things as impermanent, not self, 
then the mind goes peaceful. It could be when we're meditating or when we're just walking around and doing different activities. Every time the mind goes peaceful through a little bit of insight into the three characteristics, then it, you know, the mind goes a little bit closer to the Buddha. As we meditate, we tend to even still be conditioned by greed, hatred and delusion. So we practice sitting meditation. How often do we get caught into striving for a certain experience, a certain kind of experience, wanting to get some kind of peace or bliss? And that very wanting is blocking the mind, is agitating the mind. Not, not allowing the mind to settle down. You have to bring it back to just basic putting attention on our object, letting go of all the other craving. If there's less craving in the mind, then there's less frustration. We're more willing to sit with mental states that are not yet peaceful or some physical discomfort or pain. If the mind is willing to set aside its greed and its aversion, <clears throat> if, all your, if you're always seeking something special, special knowledge, special experience from your meditation, then you're also setting up the causes for disappointment. It's very easy to get disheartened and give up meditation. So just learn to be able to sit, to walk, and put effort into bringing up mindfulness over and over again. Because that's where true peace can be find, found. Where there's true peace, then true insight can arise. One of the dangers is if, of perhaps we always like to read more, study the suttas, study the teachings. If we uh, gain a lot of knowledge very quickly of the teachings, there's nothing wrong with that, but one of the dangers is we often get panya or wisdom before we get a sense of well -be real well-being or contentment in the practice. We have to reflect on this a bit. Why, if we read a lot and keep looking at the world, as I've been describing, it's impermanent, stressful, not self. Very easy for that to be a cause for the mind to become a little bit disappointed or depressed or for us, for us to lose energy, lose heart in the practice. We also have to develop a, a sense of appreciation of the whole path and how it works together. As we're developing com contentment, happiness, just being in the robes, practicing, leading a wholesome life, keeping the sealer, we have to keep bringing that up into our awareness, reflecting on some, maybe some of the simple joys of renunciation, of 
uh, service as we serve others, help others. Some of the joys, the happiness of living a life where you're not harming anybody. And look at that as part of, in perspective, so that we really experience a sense of well-being, inner well-being as we contemplate the Dhamma. If we're always just reading about the path and the three characteristics of existence, everything is impermanent, it's not self, very easy for the mind to become very dry and often feel rather depressed with the way things are. Good antidote to that is the practice of uh, metta, Brahma-viharas. Maybe make a time once a day, whether there's group meetings or not, just to practice metta meditation. Really learn how to bring up a thought and a feeling, an emotion, a positive emotion of metta directed to oneself and directed out to others just to give that underlying sense of goodwill, to really know what it feels like, really bring it up as a store, like a store of metta. And then when we're contemplating suffering and its causes and how to abandon it, it's like there's a buoyancy to the mind, it's cushioned, not so easy to get discouraged with the, with the reflections that we're doing. If you're constantly looking at your own body as impermanent, not self, something that's destined to get sick, get old, die, doing that with others, the people you know and love, contemplating the impermanence of everything in this world, if you have an underlying sense of goodwill that you're cultivating through metta practice, then it doesn't lead to negative states arising so much. As we know from the time of the Buddha, even contemplating the unattractiveness of the body could lead monks to the point of suicide. It's possible. We have to be skillful in the way we practice. If we're learning, or contemplating a lot about the super of the body or the impermanence of this world, relationships, people, and so on, and balance it up with some metta meditation. Keep doing that and go back to the metta and then contemplate some more, go back to the metta, contemplate some more. Maybe it's one way of in reaching emancipation or liberation, they call it metta panya vimuti. And you cultivate metta as a very powerful meditation object and also contemplate even the Peace and happiness of that metta is impermanent. But you can do that contemplation because the mind is peaceful enough, content enough, happy enough in itself.
in the end we have to become skilled with getting to know our own character and what will support us in the practice. How ascetic we can be, whether we want to experiment with fasting or going without sleep, pushing ourselves, sitting and walking, or how extreme we go, how much we practice in this way, we have to learn for ourselves. We can't just compare with others, say, oh, they fast a lot, maybe I should fast a lot. And we have to know for ourselves, and sometimes we get to know through doing the practice. But that's really knowing by looking at what we're doing, not just comparing or competing with others. We have to be able to survive, so we have to be healthy, so we can't push ourselves too much, that we become ill or weak. But then we also have to keep summoning up efforts. There's nothing wrong to experiment a little bit. But we have to be the one who learns and knows and finds out from our practice. And generally, we tend to be, we err on the side of, we're a bit timid. So when it's our usual time to sleep, we just go to sleep. When it's a meal time, we just take the food that we like, what we're used to. Even in this life, it's very easy just to get into a habitual way, the way we relate to the requisites, the way we, way we use our time and so on. So sometimes it is good to experiment a bit, push ourselves more. Be a little bit bold in the practice. You catch yourself when you say, oh, it's time to go to bed. You say, well, what if I don't go to bed now? When it's time for the meal and you see yourself wanting to take a certain kind of food, well, what if I don't take it? It can even mean other things. Maybe you want to speak in a, in a group situation. You want to say something. Well, what if I don't say it? And sometimes we have to learn how to challenge ourselves, experiment a little bit. In the same way we also go deeper than that and start challenging our own beliefs and views. As I said at the beginning, we, we all have this basic delusion. We look for happiness in that which brings us dukkha, suffering. And we see things that are inherently impermanent as permanent. We take ownership of that which ultimately has no owner. In these views, these perceptions, we have to challenge as well. So part of our practice is about questioning, questioning the way that we do things within the bounds of Dhamma Vinaya. We question, we look, we learn, and we sometimes we experiment. We have to be a bit creative here, be the one that sees what, what we need to do. But if nothing is obvious, well, there's nothing wrong also with just following along, keeping the routine, keeping the Vinaya, keeping up with the meditation practice. Your wisdom comes slowly for some, quicker for others. We can't 
predict either. There's no guarantee here. But as long as we have this willingness to learn, willingness to question from our experience, willingness to look, to learn, then there's always a chance for wisdom to arise. So we have a night of practice tonight. Encourage you all to make use of your time and uh, I hope these uh, words have been of some use to you. <laughs> <laughs>